Hi, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Toy Heart, a podcast about bluegrass. This is the last episode of season two here from Nashville is my conversation with Allison Krauss. I remember, you know, the first time I looked out in the audience and saw people singing words to our songs that only we had recorded. That was just a really crazy moment. Just never thought it would end up being there. Never thought we'd hear back from Rounder. Yeah. Never thought we would hear from Rounder in the first place. If this is your first time listening, you can hear full interviews with Jerry Douglas, Allison Brown, Bela Fleck, Larry Sparks, Jody Stecker, and so many more wherever you get your podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Later on. Welcome to Basic Folk, where we have honest conversations with folk musicians. I am guest host Lizzie No, and I'm here with Cindy House. What's up, Cindy? Hello. Uh, not not too much is up. That's a lie. You have something very, 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 very important that has happened, and I was sort of teeing it up for you to mention that. But since you refuse, I will break the news. Cindy has an amazing new. Wow. I didn't know I didn't know that you did vocal runs, first of all. I try to keep that under the surface because, you know, you don't wanna you don't wanna put it in people's faces too much. But when it comes to puppies, I give my all. That's like my homosexuality. I don't wanna put mm-hmm. it in people's faces too right. much. I mean that's like your lifestyle that your sinful lifestyle that you've chosen. And I do like <laughs> I mean, honestly, like I do have agendas. I throw them out there. Sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is true, Basic Folk listener. Uh, I uh, have gotten a puppy, my wife and I. My gay wife and I have gotten a puppy. <laughs> um, Congrats. Thank you so much. She is uh, three months old. She's just a baby, Cindy. She's just a baby. She is a tiny 34-pound baby. People are like, they look at this puppy and they're like, Oh, this is going to be a big dog. And then they start yeah. like, look, they like the people just like will talk about the feet like the oven. Feet. They're just like oven mitts. And they really are like oven mitts because you can hear her because she's like a puppy and she doesn't know how to do anything. So she's just like clomping around and it sounds like she's wearing like wooden clogs because she doesn't know like she has like not great control over her feet. But we have named her Puddles. Phyllis Howes Mohan. It's a beautiful name. It's an historic name. Yes. Puddles. She's like the most fun, except she sleeps like 27 hours a day. That's the, actually the most fun part about her to yes. me personally. I've been dying to get her to like play with a puppy and I can't find a puppy that matches her energy level because it's like everybody's puppies are like way too excited. Mm-hmm. And she's, she's just, just like chilling. She's just like, whoa. Wow, a slow motion puppy. I'm so happy for you, Cindy. Thanks. Yeah, I was playing with her the other day and I was like, I feel like this is the most fun I've ever had in my life. It probably is. I've never had a puppy before and it's it's pretty fun so far, you know, and I also really love how when there's like a terrible thing that she does and that she keeps doing, you know, I'll go to bed and be like, oh, this sucks. This dog, um, you know, eats our garden and it, it's just I this is going to be our lives are terrible now. And then the next day I'll Google how to like 
get your dog to stop eating your garden. I'm like, oh, there's tricks. What are the tricks for that? I have read that you can get like um, a little fence. Like, so our garden isn't very big. So you can get like um, like a tall fence posts to like go around it. Like you order, you order these like $100 things on Amazon. You stick them in the ground. Another thing they suggest is to spray lemon juice on your mm-hmm, garden mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. dogs do not like lemon. Um, there are these things you can get that spray water if it senses heat or motion. Or you could do what I'd like to try to do. I haven't tried it yet. You can just use the garden hose. Gotcha. Or I should get a super soaker. That sounds very fun. That sounds a lot better, actually. Please access our GoFundMe right away to provide Cindy <laughs> with super soakers. Puppy super soaker. What's going on with you, uh, Lizzie? Um, I've just gotten home from a little tour with Paisley Fields and Molly Abomsawin. It was so much fun. And I'm getting ready to go out to California, where I am playing on the Buddy Miller Cavalcade of Stars at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, which is my favorite festival. Like when I was a college student, I used to go to this festival and like look up at Emmylou Harris and like Jason Isbell and Trampled by Turtles and be like, one day I will be a real musician and I will play at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass. And now it is happening in a matter of days, which is so unreal. That's really cool. Congratulations. Thank you. Ugh, I just can't wait. I feel like now is a good opportunity for me to tell you how great you're doing. I don't know if you Thank feel you. like you're doing great, but like it seems I sure like, don't, Cindy. Yeah. Well, that I can relate to, but like let me just say that you are like it seems like every single time I talk to you, you're like, guess what? This huge thing is happening for me. And it really is like enough, you know? Like all of these huge right. things that are happening. That's why I need friends like you because I am aware of those things and I'm grateful for them and they sort of feel like they belong to someone else's life. Like when I'm like playing Hardly Strictly or getting new music recorded. But then I look around at the piles of laundry in my home and all of the little tasks that I've left undone. And I'm like, you're not even a real Mm. grown up, are you? Um, Well, do you want me to come over and do your laundry? Because I'm available. I would love that. All right. Also, the other thing... I love to do is fix problems. So let me just think on that problem and uh, mm-hmm. try to fix it for you. Cool. You let me know how I can become a grown-up adult. All right. Halfway into the intro, let's talk about how you can stay in touch with Basic Folk. You can sign up for our newsletter, which Boom. we send one time a month. You can sign up for that at basicfolk.com. Follow us on social media. We are not on TikTok, but we're on all the other ones, at Basic Folk Pod. Uh, Lizzie is on TikTok. Ask me about Imagine Dragons is her TikTok handle. That is my TikTok handle. You can also make a contribution to Basic Folk. We're listener supported. Basicfolk.com slash donate. We love you. Okay, let's talk about our guest today, Caleb Cottle. Carolina Dreamboat Caleb Cottle is our guest this week. Caleb Cottle has lived a lot of his life on the road, and it is in his blood. His dad was a truck driver, and Caleb learned early on that making a living often meant long stretches of time, you know, in solitude away from home. Man, I wonder if his dad ever listened to Garth Brooks or Alabama songs about 
driving trucks. You know me, I love a good country music song about a truck driver or a rodeo performer. So do I. What's that one? The House That Peter Built? Classic Mm. song. Mm. Um, (laughs) So Caleb started out in a rock band called The Bayonets before he found his calling as a thoughtful alt-country singer-songwriter. When Caleb released his debut album, Red Bank Road, in 2007, he was not yet a full-time musician, kind of had one foot in, one foot out, maybe, and was just beginning to realize what made his songwriting voice distinctive. Um, His numerous releases since then have been a journey deeper and deeper into his own sound and into his own point of view. So Caleb has driven the hard road in music. He has released albums and toured relentlessly since 2007. Albums like Carolina Ghost and Better Hurry Up gained him a reputation as one of the Americana performers to watch in Nashville. Um, As Caleb opened up about getting sober and being intentional about his legacy, his gifts as a songwriter continued to blossom. He recorded his latest release for Scythia at the Cash Cabin, kind of a dream Mm. recording spot for a lot of songwriters. Um, And he brought in like a trusted group of collaborators, people that he'd been working with for years because he wanted this album to be intimate and all about coming home. The imagery of Forsythia brings you home with him to North Carolina and home into himself. And he even came full circle with a new recording of the title track Red Bank Road from his debut 2007 album. Mm. One thing that became clear to me about Caleb in this interview is that he's someone that brings the past with him, like a lot of great Southern songwriters, but he's also challenging himself all the time to make something new with his life and with his art. Hmm. Well, let's take a listen to one of Caleb's uh, new tracks uh, before we get into this conversation. Really looking forward to hearing this one, Lizzie. This is the song I Don't Fit In from Caleb Cottle, and then we'll hear our conversation between Caleb and Lizzie on Basic Folk. I don't fit in not the way that's expected. There's a murder of crows counting the bones they've collected. I don't fit in, not at all, not at all. I never minded following all the rules that were set for me. Just so long as they all made sense and I could do just as I please. Can be yourself. I was told it ain't worth the fight. That kept me up all night. I don't feel not the way that's expected. There's a murder. Hi, Caleb. Hey, Lizzie. Thank you for joining us today. I have a lot of questions for you, so we're going to get right into it. So, was guitar your first instrument? It actually wasn't. Um, the first band that I played an instrument in, I played bass. And I had bought a bass from a pawn shop, and I didn't really know how to play. And so mm-hmm. the guitar player in the band that I was in was just kind of a startup kind of garage band. And they were just like, play this note, play this note. And so I just did that. And and then, um, you know, I was kind of default singer because nobody wanted to be. Oh, my gosh. That's so funny. Was that the Bayonets? No, uh, it was long before that. It was a band called Dakota. Caleb, I'm... I'm actually not going to ask you, and I don't want you to tell me how old you are, but you are the guest that I have had the most trouble figuring out 
your age because you have done so many musical projects that I'm like, but you seem like a, a peer and yet you have multiple bands like under your belt, so many albums. Um, but like back to the beginning, who taught you to play guitar and were there particular artists or bands that you wanted to sound like when you were like first starting to play? Yeah, I taught myself. Um, I traded the bass in uh, because I, at the time, I was maybe a little bit ahead of my years and I figured out quickly that like bands are kind of a disaster. And if I wanted yeah. to like keep moving forward <laughs> on my own like schedule, mm -hmm. then I kind of needed to maybe go at it more alone. And so I traded my bass in and I got a um, acoustic guitar. And um, it was right around that time where I started getting really into songwriting. Um, my first influences were really like The Replacements and The Clash mm -hmm. and uh, The Velvet Underground, Lou Reed. He was That was a big one for me because I was like, whoa, he's singing about things that not everyone else is singing about. And so, yeah. um, so then I started kind of getting into... Uh, you know, all the early Dylan records and, mm -hmm. um, you know, that kind of just led me back through everything. And so I have a really curious mind. And when I like see a thread, I usually chase it as back, and, mm -hmm. you know, as far as it can go. And so um, from Dylan, I got really into like country music and like kind of outsider country music, like Graham Parsons and like, you know, Sweetheart of the Rodeo was a big record for me from the birds. And, um, and then I kind of just went from there and I just saw like the big, I just kind of started to see how everything was connected. Um, and right. so it was really fascinating to me. And I, and I just kind of like, now I feel like I'm on this endless quest to just see how it all comes together and, and, you know, where it all comes from. Yeah. So in those early days, you were just playing along to records and like trial and error, figuring out how to like kind of translate those melodies onto guitar? Yeah, exactly. I was just doing it wow. all, all by ear. Um, m my dad's mom played piano by ear um, in church. And so I always thought that that was super interesting to just like hear something and then just kind of, you know, fiddle around until you come across, yeah. you know, till it sounds good, basically. And so I've always kind of <laughs> just like, if it sounds good, it is good. Yeah, exactly. Like, I, I think it's a really interesting and intuitive way of learning music, kind of like you were saying in your band. It sounds like your bandmates were kind of just like calling out the notes. And it takes a little bit of confidence that like, you're jumping into the deep end of the pool and figuring it out as you go. Yeah, you know, confidence or just like uh, ignorance. <laughs> sure, sure. I, you know, I was just kind of like, this is really fun. I'll just do, you know, this beats trying to, you, this beats getting cut from like the football team or something. So like, yeah. I'll just run with this for a while. I wonder how many uh, musicians, like especially in this Americana lane, are like, people who had that choice in middle school, like, am I going to go out for the band or am I going to go out for the football team? And like, that's where the, the roads diverged. Yeah, I, I remember this one time, um, same pawn shop, but my, uh, my mom kind of gave me the option. She's like, do you want a class ring or do you want like something musical? And I was like, I want a PA, you know, that I can like yeah. carry to band practice and everything. And so uh, it was really funny at the time because it was just like... <laughs> 
you know, something that we would dread, like the PA, like showing up at a venue. Mm-hmm. If the, if this PA belonged to a venue, we'd be like, no, this isn't going to work. But like at the time, that was just like the golden ticket. Like I was the guy with the PA. I could like bring it over and we could, you know, I could sing above the loud music. And that was really cool for me. That says so much. In those early days, like having your own PA can be the difference between like playing an okay gig versus playing like a truly shitty gig. Cause like, <laughs> God bless all the years that all of us have had to tour with like the worst bar PAs oh, man. in America. Yeah, It's like a rite of passage kind of. Yeah, that and oh. sleeping on couches, it's like the two things. No, thank you. Um, so you released your debut album, Red Bank Road in 2007. Yeah. And then I, what I've read is that you didn't make the move to being a full-time musician until some time later. So can you kind of paint a picture of those in-between years where like you knew you were a songwriter, you knew you had something to say, but maybe you weren't ready to like have that infrastructure to tour full-time and and call yourself like a professional musician. Like how did you see yourself in those years and and what were you doing for work and how are you spending your time? So um, when we made Red Bank Road, it was like, you know, I mean, I was like so poor at the time. Um, I just remember borrowing someone's car and driving to Mm -hmm. Johnson City and we recorded it all in a a day and a half at this like abandoned dairy barn. And uh, I didn't know how to sing yet. I had maybe a couple good songs. Really, Red Bank Road was the only like really great song off that record. And it was a big turning point when I wrote that song because it was kind of like, oh, like, I have to write songs this good. I can't write them what I thought was good because this is, like, a new standard. Right. And so I remember feeling that. And um, at the time, I was working at a uh, a pizza joint in Winston-Salem, and I was, like, a manager during the days. And then on the weekends, I was, like, weekend warrior kind of thing. Like, I would mm-hmm. go go get in the van. So I'd work Monday through Friday and then get right off work. And then I would go play for three nights and then come Mm -hmm. right back and do it again. And, um, developed a a serious, um, (laughs) alcohol problem during those years because I was just like, it was just nonstop. It just felt like that was part of the deal. And like, that was just kind of part of the pay. Um, but I do remember feeling like I got to a place where I was asking off of work so often that, it almost felt like the need to kind of jump, but it was also a really scary jump. Um, So like I sold everything I owned pretty much, except for my record collection and some clothes and like a pair of steer horns. And, (laughs) and, Oh my God. I I know. And, um, (laughs) and I just remember putting everything into like a Ford escape that I had at the time. And um, I booked myself three months of shows and I put in my two weeks notice and I was just like, I'm doing this thing and I'm going to fail and I'm going to figure it out. <laughs> oh, my God. I think a lot of people can relate to that leap, whether musical or not. And I want to send you a song and maybe I'll link it in the show notes. My good friend Caroline Reese has this great song called I'm Not Selling the Telecaster. And it's about that exact moment where you like put it all on the line, but you choose like the one or two things that like you actually can't afford to part with. Yeah, yeah. For me, it was like clothing, records were a big thing, and then my brother had given me the steer horns for Christmas that that yeah. that, that Christmas before I put in my two weeks. So I was like, well, I can't get rid of these. I just got these. And no, they're no, amazing. No. <laughs> so <laughs> so did, 
Have I read that your dad drove trucks for a living? Yeah, that's right. So for like almost 30 years, he hauled cars. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you see those trucks where it's like a ton of cars on them that are really scary, that's what he did. And um, and then after that, he retired and he started working for Red Cross, driving the vans and going to like the blood drives and everything. And so like what have you learned from him about a life on the road? I mean, really, it's hard work. You know, he, he just always set that, you know, example of just like working really hard and so I've kind of just like adapted that and, you know, and then I, I guess being on the road sort of like in my DNA now, where it's just like, yeah, it just felt normal, I guess, like touring felt mm-hmm. normal because he was always driving around for hours each day. And I just kind of felt like, well, that seems like a normal thing to do. But what I didn't consider was that like, that's only like a small part of my job or, you know, right. And, and you know, my job's changed so much just in the past eight years, you know, with everything new that is required of independent artists to try to, like, compete with the the heavies, you know. Yeah. Can you talk about that a little more? I mean, I know I can relate that, like, I think our generation of songwriters is at this interesting transition moment where, like, maybe when we started, it was enough to, like, have a record do well on iTunes. And now there's this whole other branding and social media aspect. So like, what's that transition been like for you? I mean, it's interesting because in a big way, I think that everything is always pushed back on the artist. You know, Mm -hmm. anytime there's something new to accomplish, rarely do you hear someone in the industry being like, oh, I got that. You know, it's always like, oh, we'll we'll get the artist (laughs) to do it, you know, and Mm -hmm. and so, you know, constantly creating content for free seems, you know, at the very least distracting and at the very most uh, just feels like being exploited. Um, 100 percent. Yeah. And so it's interesting because you you have to do those things because the end goal. Um, But when I was first starting, like when I made that first record and I borrowed a car and, you know, I remember, um, I ordered all these like blank cardboard CD cases and my buddy, mm-hmm. I went to my buddy's basement we screen printed all of them and we screen printed the actual CDs and I burned all the CDs on, you know, like a computer and I packaged them all. And like, I remember like I sold like 34 CDs like in the first day that I put mm-hmm. out put out that first record. That is really good. I don't think I've ever <laughs> sold 34 CDs in a single day. Like you can play like a sold out show and like if you sell 10 CDs, like that's a great night. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, uh, <laughs> you know, like I remember playing the album release show and I remember like, you know, my friends and family showed up. And it yeah. was like, wow, I really felt a lot of support. And then there's like this transitional period of your career where it goes from, you know, it goes from being just friends and family and then you start getting people you don't know. And then, and and then some of the friends kind of just stop coming and, and then you're like, Oh wait. And then at some point it's just like, Oh, people are just here to hear the songs. They're not here for any other reason. And so Mm -hmm. that's, that was a, you know, that's a big growing pain kind of thing, but also like a super interesting process. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. I want to jump in a little bit to your album, Carolina Ghost, that came out in, was it 2016? Yeah. Um, so I read this great profile on you in Bitter Southerner. Um, yeah, Charles where Aaron they compare- wrote that. 
Charles Aaron, like I, I loved the way he wrote about your music and, and you as a person. Um, and he compared that record to like early 80s Merle. And I thought that was kind of apt because it's glossy, but it's also soulful. And I'm curious what your sonic influences were going into that album cycle. Early 80s Merle. <laughs> well, there we go. He just really nailed it. Um, you know, yeah. and, and like just like I think I was, you know, I liked the production on those Merle records. Um, mm-hmm. But I think what I really loved was, was his songwriting during that time because I felt like he was pulling from almost like a like great American songbook, you know, it felt yeah. like uh, it was more in line with like the chords the Beatles were using or like Randy Newman or, you know, and it's like, it felt more of that to me than anything else. And it felt really mm-hmm. sensitive. And I've always been uh, a really sensitive songwriter as far as like, I've never been like tough guy country or like, you know, it's always been way more mm-hmm. poetic. I've always, you know, right. tried to like speak from experience and, just try to view the world around me. It's like, I'm not like into like running anyone over or whatever, whatever they do in, in tough guy country. I don't know. It's just like, uh, I'm just disinterested. It's in very, that. you're not the, like, you're not the John Wayne country singer that no makes millions in Nashville. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, you know, I, it's just, I have no interest. That's a different world than the one that I want to yeah. create for my music and myself. So, well, is it true that um, Carolina Ghost was your first album that you created sober? Yeah, that's true. That was the first one. I'm so curious about not necessarily like all of the health and wellness benefits of like sobriety, of which we all know, like there are so many. But when I think about going into the studio, one of the biggest puzzles to tackle is to like, figure out how to get in the zone, how to feel like your highest, most expressive self. And for a lot of us, you know, drugs and alcohol are one shortcut to get there. So did you feel like you had to create new inroads to like the zone once you were like starting to create sober? Yeah, totally. Like if, you know, recently I had to like send a song list over to somebody and I think I I heard some tracks off of Carolina Ghost and when I Mm-hmm. When I listen to them, it's like I can't help but hear like how insecure I was like mm. as a vocalist and like because I'd always relied on on booze. I mean, to, to make me feel like comfortable enough to like go for it or whatever. And, sure. and whether going for it was good or not is, you know, completely subjective. But so so like yeah. with Carolina Ghost, I was like hearing myself in a way that maybe I had never heard myself before because there wasn't like the filter of like false confidence or whatever you want to call it. And so, um, yeah, that was really interesting because I was like, oh, this is how I sound. I'm not sure I love how I sound. Like this is going to be a process of Mm -hmm. just like constant refinement. And so that kind of started a whole new journey for me. Yeah, I think you can hear it in your voice as you listen to the records year by year and I think it's actually really amazing because it still sounds like you but there are changes to your vocal where there's like a lightness Mm -hmm. um that I didn't hear on those early records and Carolina Ghost seemed like a turning point for you yeah I think for a long time I was just trying not to sound bad and then (laughs) you know what I mean like it's who can relate (laughs) like like that was like the minimum you know I was like I was just like selling myself short in a lot of ways like 
but I think we, like when Carolina Ghost came out and I listened mm-hmm. back to that, I was like, I think I'm on to something. Like my new goal is not to sound not like it's not to sound just okay or whatever. Like I want to be great and like how can I be great? And so I started trying to like you know, at that point I was going through a huge uh change as far as like my listening habits. You know, for leading up into Carolina Ghost, it was like country music, like country music, country music. Like that was it. And then after Carolina Ghost, it's like I felt like I made a straight ahead country record and I was mm-hmm. like, I don't want to do that again. Like I feel like I've already done that. And so it just opened up everything. I mean, I just started listening to reggae, jazz, funk, oh. like blues. And then I got as obsessed with all of those genres as I was with country music. And so it just completely changed me because I was way more open to being influenced out from outside of my genre to the point where now I don't even like hear it as a genre when I'm writing or when I'm like recording, like, I'm just doing whatever the hell I want, and that's mm-hmm. just going to have to be what it comes out to be, you know, because, like, absolutely, I got to live with this, you know, and I got, you know, I'm trying to leave behind a, a trail of art, and I want it to be more rich um, than just, like, I just don't want it to be limited by, like, hey, this is, like, straight country music, like, I'm just, I feel like that's been done, and it's been done better than me, and... I just don't really feel the need to like add to that canon. That's really interesting. I think that I get a sense on quite a few of your albums that you're like very conscious of creating a legacy and like living with the past, but transforming it in some way. And I guess I'm thinking about is the is the track White Dove's Wing? Is that the title, mm-hmm. the name of it? Yeah. Um, what does it mean to you now to grow old with grace? That's a good question. That's a lyric that I really like that really stuck with me from that from that song. Yeah, and you know, at the time it was like I was just about to get married and I think I wrote that song from a place of like just like being kind of naive about it all. And mm. um I think it was more of like a hopeful line than anything or it's truly what I felt, you know, I'm like if I've written it it's because I felt it in a moment, but um to me now, like looking back, it probably means something way different now, you know, um, because I've just, I've just learned, you know, life will beat mm-hmm. you up. And um, so now it kind of means just trying to find peace. Simple as that. And <laughs> difficult as that. <laughs> yeah, simple as that. I want to skip ahead somewhat um, just because you have so many great songs and so many albums. I want to skip ahead to 2020. Better hurry up. Um, And I want to start by focusing in on Reach Down, which to me is the most fascinating song on the album because it is sort of a political song. There's a little bit of that inspiring Oregon come together thing. But it's also an epistemological song that kind of has this angle of the rich and the poor live in separate worlds and because of that have access to different kinds of knowledge. So for our listeners, like a key lyric for me was, I've seen them swinging from chandeliers, champagne corks in both their ears, 
wall built high just to drown the sound from the hopeless hearts in desperate town reach down so in that context that's wordy, where it's man. like yeah we're living worlds away i think it's great we're living worlds away based on class and where we're born and all of those things what does it actually mean to reach down and like who were you writing that for who was the audience you had in mind um just anyone who's vulnerable really um mm-hmm. you know um anyone who's not afforded the same opportunities as you. So it could even be, you know, even like at the time I felt like a, you know, I still feel like I'm like a poor person, you know, but yeah. I, I definitely live that way. I live like, you know, very, I'm not like spindy or anything, you know, Yes. but, but, but still like, I feel like um, I still had, you know, the opportunity to help people who were below me. And so I just think mm-hmm. that there's just like tears, right? And so right. I just feel like, you know, it's sort of just our responsibility to just, if somebody doesn't have the same opportunity as you, to just help them if you can. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it was so timely. Like, were you, did you have like the really like volcanic political atmosphere in mind when you released that? I mean, was there any trepidation with like putting out a song like that? Like, knowing what we'd gone through as a country in the, in, you know, the past five years before 2020? I mean, you know, probably, I mean, even if it was just like subconsciously, you know, I don't think there's no way to avoid it. Right. So, um, Mm -hmm. but I definitely probably wrote that out of maybe anger or sadness. Mm. And usually those things kind of tend to get, you know, tangled up together. Oh yeah. Not a lot of straight men are admitting that. Usually it's like just the anger. Um, And I think to be a good songwriter, you have to figure out the overlap between anger and sadness. So hats off to you. Well, (laughs) you know, they're so connected. I mean, and and I kind of feel that way about almost everything. I feel like it's all sort of, you know, um, everything means a little more than we think that it does. And um yeah, so I've just, you know, I just pay attention as a songwriter. You know, it's like the closer you can pay attention to details, I just think the better, you know, because usually mm-hmm. the more specific you're getting with something, it's like, the weirdly enough, it becomes more universal at that point because everybody's like saying, oh, I identify with that in this way to my life. You know, it's like each person takes from it what they want. And I think there's something really beautiful about that process. I think you're right. I think people are really resistant to being talked at, but everybody likes to hear a specific story. And so like, I feel like the less you tell people how they're supposed to feel and the more you like paint a picture, the more successful you're going to be at like actually connecting with people. Yeah. And in a little bit of a way, it's like you're allowing the listener to come to it on their own time. And I Mm -hmm. think that's another big part of the way people change. Mm-hmm. In general, I think that, you know, when people come to it by themselves, I think it's like true change versus when they're mm-hmm. beat over the head with something. Then they're like, oh, I guess I'll reluctantly change. I don't feel that that change is like a sincere one. And so I kind of like it the other way around. That's interesting. I I'm really bad at taking advice. Are you that way, too? Like, do you need to come to things independently for it to be real in your life? Oh, yeah. <laughs> 100 <laughs> percent. I mean, you know, and it, that comes from, like, just being, like, early age. Like, I was just, like, always, you know, like, m- one of my first influences was, like, Joe Strummer from The Clash. And it was just, like, 
question everything, you know? And, like, mm-hmm. so, like, I just applied that. And I was just like, I'm not going to listen to anybody, <laughs> you know? I'm I'm going right. to, you know, I'm going to figure it out myself. And I've always just had a curious mind like that. So, yeah. You know, that's interesting. I, um, I'm kind of connecting the dots as far as, like, it sounds like you're not the type of artist that has, like, heroes that you like look up to whole cloth, like you're going to make your own way. And I I read in that Bitter Southerner profile that like Ryan Adams and Whiskey Town were an early influence. So like, do you, what do you do with their legacy now? Like, do you still, are there still parts of their artistry that you um, take something from and get inspired from? Um, Or was there, was there a moment where you kind of had to be like, this is someone I maybe used to look up to. And then the path that they ended up taking, like, kind of changed their legacy for me? I know that's like a complex question, but like looking back, yeah, how do you deal? Well, one, I got to break it down in like three different parts because it's pretty complex. Uh, I agree, yeah. First being that uh, I'm friends with Caitlin and Skillet who are are married and they're in Whiskey Town and they're fantastic Mm -hmm. people who I love. Absolutely. And, um, you know, as far as like the legacy of that – it's weird, you know, when everything came out about uh, Ryan, then, like, I haven't listened to him since. But um, mm-hmm. I-, I just think that that, you know, is kind of easy to do. And I don't want to sound, like, mean in this way. But, like, there's a lot of people doing what he was doing better than he was doing it. And I just feel like I just gravitate towards their music anyways at this point. I think I had a lot of growing up to do, probably. And I had a lot of, like searching to do musically to find mm-hmm. all of those people but those people were important like ryan and whiskey town were important to me growing up because they're from north carolina and there was like a big pool there and um there was a huge alt country scene in north carolina but like i you know i always talk about like how cool caitlin was to me like early on asking her questions she would like you know always be good to me and like let me know like here's here's kind of what I think, but like, I was also super into like merge records and yep rock. Mm -hmm. And, um, there was a guy, there's a guy in Winston Salem. His name's Jeffrey Dean Foster. He had a band called the pine tops. And that Mm -hmm. was like all equally important. And, um, good news is that, you know, he's not a dirt bag, so I can still like, (laughs) (laughs) you know, like look to him as like somebody that was, um, important to me in my like formative years. But yeah, I mean, it's interesting. Like, what do we do? with that art that informed us when it becomes soured. I mean, I don't quite know what to do with it, so I just put it away. Yeah. I think I'm really glad you're like willing to go there because I think there are simple there are a lot of like very simple convenient answers when it comes to an artist who's been revealed to like not have behaved ethically. Right. And there's the answer of like cancel them pretend they never existed. There's the like just get over it it's not the worst thing that could have happened. And then there's the middle ground where it's like, as artists, we we were blessed by what they created. Right. And we probably have a ton of respect for the people around them that worked with them as well. So it's mm-hmm. not just about one person. It's about a scene and it's about a culture that like took something from this person, right? So I think it's really interesting to think about like how do we let people influence us without like just giving them a free pass for bad behavior. Yeah, I mean, and you know, honestly, he was also a gateway to a lot of music that ended up being like all-time kind of music for me. Like, Absolutely. It was like, 
you know, I always talk about like Whiskey Town the same way I talk about like the Jayhawks or Uncle Tupelo, which is like. I mean, amazing bands. Absolutely amazing bands. Right. Like these were like yeah. ga- gateway bands for me to figure out what country music, you know, could be or, you know, that kind of thing. So, yeah, the, it, yeah. Was, it was certainly interesting. Okay, speaking of, like, legendary bands and artists that we still look up to today, how did your friendship with Elizabeth Cook come about? That came through, I don't know exactly how it happened, but I remember I had, um, you know, we have a bunch of mutual friends, I think maybe mm-hmm. Aaron, Aaron Lee Tashin maybe maybe introduced us, I can't quite remember uh, just because it's been That a sounds while. like him. Yeah, yeah. And um, <laughs> exactly. But, um, but what's your collaborative dynamic like? You've worked, I, I love all of the duets that you've done over the years. Like, what's the dynamic like between the two of you uh, as singers? I almost got to take a different approach for this answer because, like, to yeah. me, like, she's like one of my favorite people ever in the world. Mm-hmm. So um, there's that. And then also, I think she is a wonderful singer who mm-hmm. compliments me very well. And I think she has an ability when she's singing along with someone to really figure out, like, the energy of the song. So, like, mm-hmm. if it's a song like Monte Carlo off Better Hurry Up, it's, like, kind of aggressive and, like, you know, full-bodied and, like, she's belting mm-hmm. with me. But then, like, a song like Forsythia is so delicate and she's just, like, mm-hmm. this perfect compliment. So I just think she has a really... She's, like, really good at, like, paying attention to what the artist is doing, and she just wants to compliment that. Well, I do want to talk about Forsythia. It's your new album that's out in October. I'm so excited for people to hear this album, and I want everyone to know, like, the environment and the story that led into it. Can you talk to me about The Cash Cabin and specifically the very special reverb chamber that they have over there. (laughs) Yeah, sure. Um, Paint us a picture. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, the Cash Cabin was built um, by Johnny Cash in the late 70s, and it was kind of like his retreat. Uh, He would just go make music there, and at the time, before the new section was built on in the 90s, it was just the the main room, which is now like the kitchen slash drum room, um, but mm-hmm. they all used to gather around a single microphone there, and it's right in front of, like, the uh, fireplace. And if you've ever been out there, you know that everyone who records there signs the mantle of the fireplace. So it's like, you know, the first thing I saw was Mavis on the fireplace, and I was just like, oh, the pressure. But um, Oh, my you, God. You For know. those just listening who can't see us on Zoom, my jaw just hit the table. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, you know, it it was so cool. I started working out there because, um, speaking of the Jayhawks, my friend John Jackson uh, is in the Jayhawks, and he also produced uh, some records for, like, Ray Davies from the Kinks, Mm -hmm. where uh, the Jayhawks would, like, back him up. And um, we were, he was going to produce Better Hurry Up. He came and saw me at Rockwood in New York. And after the show... I love Rockwood. Yeah, me too. Shout out Rockwood. Um, so he came and saw me and I came up to the merch table afterwards and he introduced himself and he was like, Hey, I'm in the Jayhawks. I was like, are you kidding me? Like, cause I love the Jayhawks. Mm-hmm. And, um, he was like, man, I'd love to hear whatever songs you're writing right now. If you're interested in sharing some demos. And so, uh, finished the tour, got home and I put together kind of like a bunch of demos that I'd been working on for better hurry up. 
and I sent everything over to him, and he was like, I'd totally be into producing this if you're interested, and, um, you know, I'd love to talk more. And so uh, we met again, and we talked more, and we decided we were going to do the record, and he, we were kind of, like, bouncing ideas, like, should we do this studio, that studio, whatever, and he was like, you know, I worked out um, at the Cash Cabin for like a Loretta Lynn record and like maybe like a Willie record or something like that. And um, just a few up and coming aspiring songwriters that I think you there. I think they really have a future. Those guys. They'll get there one day. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, he was just like, you know, it's a really, really cozy kind of place, private studio. And I was like, sure. You know, I'd love to check it out. And so I went out there and instantly I like walked in and I was just like, this is it. Like it's not stuffy. There's just, mm-hmm. you know, amazing pictures of, like, Johnny and June everywhere and, like, the incredible amount of just instruments. And they were like, yeah, and if you record here, you get to use, like, Johnny's pre-war Martin. Um, I don't know if they offer that to everybody, so I'm not – this is not an advertisement for that. <laughs> so, so I just remember th- – <laughs> I remember thinking at the time, I was just like, that's worth it alone to, like, record there. And so um, – it was just a really special thing for me. And so through that, I had, I met John Carter and, um, you know, and just everybody out there, Trey, um, you know, and, and John Carter's son, Joseph, who is a great photographer, did a bunch of the, cool. he did the cover shop for, for Scythia. But um, yeah, I mean, it's just a really special place. The, the reverb chamber is amazing. So a uh, couple cool things about it. Cowboy Jack uh, designed it which is mm-hmm. really awesome. They have the reverb plate from, I think, from the 1970s that the opera used um, in there. Wow. And then there's also, all right, I don't know if I'm supposed to be saying this, but there's also this tiny little piece of tile that is, like, from Abbey Road that is in the reverb chamber amongst the other tile. It's just like a tiny little piece of Abbey Road tile. Oh, my God. Okay, we can bleep that out later if it turns out to be like a secret that's under embargo. <laughs> yeah, it might be scandalous. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Um, so digging into Forsythia a little bit, um, I don't want to read into anything if it's not there, but I'm just going to like say some things and then you can say if I'm on to anything. So like you lived in Nashville. Nashville's really the country music capital of the world. Then you move back to your home state of North Carolina. And on your new album, the lead track is called I Don't Fit In. So is there anything you'd like to comment about those possibly related facts? I think those are probably really related. Uh, it's, a little, it's, a, <laughs> it's a little bit like, uh, you know, like when, when Willie moved back to Texas and started doing his own thing. And, um, you know, I did feel pressure when I was in Nashville. By the way, I love Nashville. Um, but I did. Yeah. Feel, I do feel pressure there to, like, not necessarily conform to a sound, but I was like, oh, here's some things that, like, everyone is kind of doing. Like, do I need to be doing those things? Mm-hmm. And I always kind of... Can you give an example of something, like, for people that are a little bit more outside of, like, I mean, like, I feel like you and I are all like in the thick of it, of making this, of making Americana music. But for someone who might just be listening in, like, what's like a trope or like a sonic thing that they might recognize that's like very Nashville right now? <laughs> okay. Um, 
I'm, I'm shady. I'm going to say this without, I mean, I don't mean any offense at all. But to me, a lot of stuff sounds like Fleetwood Mac. Um, yes. And that was kind of like very much the vibe. And it was like, it almost has more to do with like soft rock than it has to do with roots sure. music. And I think that I, like, really felt that. And I was like, but why are we not? Also, I don't hear the blues in much of, uh, like, Americana. And I was, like, honestly kind of offended by that because of the role that it plays. 100%. I'm thinking this is so much, like, you have so much in common with legendary basic folk guest, Adia Victoria. Oh, cool. Like, I feel like there's, like, a, a, a coalition of Americana artists who are, like, the blues is everything. We need to get back to that. So, carry on. <laughs> yeah, you know, and, like, I, I've always loved, like, like country blues to me is, like, mm-hmm. it's, like, this thing that, like, I know it when I hear it, but it's, like, really hard for me to describe. But it feels yeah. that of the earth. It feels Mm -hmm. very, like, grounded, and it feels like it comes from a place of, like, just, like, deeper, like, deeper everything. Like, deeper joy, deeper sadness. Like, just, it feels real. Mm -hmm. And I think I was just, like, trying to get there. And I think I'm still trying to get there. I think it's it's, like, a constant process to, like, get further in it. You know, like, get deeper, blend it more see what happens. And so, yeah, yeah, I don't know. I just kind of felt like, I just felt like there was things that were missing from what was happening in the, in the music scene at the time. And I just, I just felt thought that I could go deeper with it. And which is really funny because then like I brought in these legends who are like, you know, just knock it out in three takes kind of thing. Oh, the greatest. But, like, all the guys in my band, like, Jerry, Sam, Fred, Dennis, like, they are, so, like, the depth of their playing is that of jazz musicians. It's, like, really heady. It's on a different level. Mm-hmm. And it just feels like there's no boundaries. Like, they they yeah. pull just as much from, like, you know, Coltrane as they do from like you know whoever you know Pete Drake or whoever was like a, a legendary you know in the in the country music scene so I just feel like I just I don't know they really got what I was doing and oh and, yeah and it, it just didn't feel like it was just like let's just do this man like let's just make yeah. music and like we don't have to talk about it like we I'll just play the song once and then you just do your thing and like it just felt like really good That's interesting. You know, my next question was going to be like reading the personnel on this record. These the the players on this album are like the best around legends, like you said, like studio legends. And I was wondering, like, do you go to those people with arrangement ideas or do you play them a demo on acoustic guitar and like do things live? Was there a rehearsal process where people were coming up with their parts? Like, can you walk us through what that looked like, how you went from like, I have this song written to I have a fully recorded track. So with these guys, I mean, it's just way different. Um, So there's no coaching. There's nothing like that. I would just sit in this rocking chair with with a guitar and um, I'd play the song down one time. They all just sat around with pieces of paper and they would all make individual notes. We would go in, we would hit record. Um, The first take was sometimes a keeper take. 
like without us having ever played the song together before. And then Which song or songs d- did that happen on? Crazy Wayne's first take, everything. Uh, that song, my, my vocal, is my killer. guitar, and everything. Like that wasn't even going to be on the record. But then we went Stop in. It. Yeah, we went in, and it was just like we were like, "Well, we got time to do one more." And um, so I was just like, "Well, I got this one called Crazy Wayne. It's kind of weird. There's only two chords, but it's kind of grooving." Mm-hmm. And like I played it, and everybody was like, "Jerry was just like Crazy Wayne. That's hilarious." And um, so I was just it's like... It's such a great story song. Where did that come from? <laughs> so that came from... Uh, do you know Brian Wright? The no. so- songwriter? He's from Waco, Texas. Uh, he, he has a thing called Cafe Rooster um, okay. in Nashville. And he's just a great songwriter. And um, we were talking about old mechanics that we used to have. And like, yeah, I was like, yeah, my guy's name was Crazy Wayne. And he's like, man, <laughs> he's like, you got to do something with that. And uh, so I just kind of... It was like, well, I'll just tell the story. And it's, like, all true. And um, it's just crazy. I mean, literally. But, uh, yeah. It was, literally it was, <laughs> crazy Wayne. <laughs> he, he was a lot of – he was a weird guy. But um, it's a cool song, and it's a lot of fun. And I love the way that um, Jerry and Sam kind of, like, trade off licks throughout, like, mm-hmm. the whole thing. And it's, like – it just kind of blew my mind hearing that back for the first time. I was just like, whoa, we're, like – we're in it like this is, i don't know what this is but it feels funky and it feels country and it feels kind of bluesy and mm-hmm. it just felt like just like endless kind of possibility like i love that i'm so curious why what was behind the decision to revisit red bank road what is it like 15 years later like that was a track off of your first album and even just in this conversation it's obvious that there's like a lot more soul and intention in your work now but that I but but your early material still holds up so like was it a trip to re-record something that you'd written so many years before yeah I mean it really was so that's a song so basically how that came about was I had written it for that for the first record and I recorded it. I couldn't really sing at the time. I could barely play. Uh, it's just not a good... Okay, I wouldn't say you could, couldn't could sing, but well, you're a different singer than you were then. I'm a different singer than <laughs> I was then. Um, yeah. And I just never had, like... I just never considered it a great recording. And so... Hmm. But but I, I loved the song enough that I kept playing it live. And so mm-hmm. when I stopped selling, like, CDs at the merch table of Red Bank Road... Um, I was still playing that song live and like it just got such a response from people. They're like, man, that song Red Bank Road, what's it on? Like, I really want to get it. And so in the back of my head, I'd kind of always said, like, you know, if the time's right, I'll I'll record that again. Like, I really want like a better recording of it. And I don't I don't really do that with many songs, but that one felt really special. And it felt like it was like the first song that I ever wrote where I was like, okay, I could probably do songwriting forever, you know? Mm-hmm. And so yeah. I, it felt, it felt important and I'd carried it with me for years and years. And then when we were going to make this record, like I remember writing for Scythia and I was like, man, this kind of feels like in line with some of the things that I was talking about for Red Bank Road. So it kind of felt like a, a full circle kind of moment for me. And I was like, you know, if I'm ever going to re-record this song, I should do it with Jerry Douglas and Sam Bush um, because I might not ever get that opportunity again. So it was just sort of like I just felt like the timing was right. And then when I heard it, I was like, 
oh, like we weren't going to put it on the record. I was just going to record it and like release it as like a, a single, like a standalone mm-hmm. thing. And so, but when I heard it back, I was like, that has to close the record. Like, and John Carter was like, that has to close the record. Like you don't Absolutely. really, you don't have an option. <laughs> you know, it's like, you have to do that. Yeah. It does feel like a return home. Yeah. The whole record, but especially that last song. And I was thinking about an album review that Adobe and Teardrops wrote, I think for Carolina Ghost. They talk about the Carolina-ness, like the quote Carolina-ness of your sound. What would you say is like the most Carolina thing about you as a performer and, and a recording artist, I guess? You know, I, I think it's just... Um... Like, for me, it's, like, the ability to, like, blaze my own trail. You know, like, that's mm-hmm. always been really important. And so I think that that, like, I don't know that North Carolina has a sound or, or like, the Carolinas have a sound. But I think I think the Carolinas' sound is, like, just being yourself. And, like, you know, just, like, trying to pull from all your influences and, and put yeah. it, like, blend it up and put it and, like, put your stamp on it. But I also do think that... Most people from the Carolinas sing really well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I just really like yeah, you, Carolina singers. You should meet my my grandmother, a great Carolina singer. You you really only get it in church, but when you get to hear her sing, it's very special. Where is she from? Um, Mount Olive. Okay, cool. cool. Yeah. Hi, Grandma. Hi, Hello, Grandma. If you're listening. <laughs> You gave me everything. Um, can you tell me about the making of the Forsythia music video? Shout out to Gabe Barreto, my dear friend. Like, were, did you have specific places in mind that you knew you had to include in that video? Absolutely. So um, a lot of those are what I would call like my sacred spots. So it's like, it's a trip that me and Lauren, my wife, we take often, which is like, get on Highway 8 and go up to Floyd, Virginia, and then get on the parkway there and then ride along till you get to Mabry Mill and then past that is like Dalton Park. Uh, you know, it's just some of my favorite places. And then the shots by the river are like, that's the river that ran behind the church where uh, mm-hmm. I got married with Lauren um, in this little tiny chapel that's like right in front of the river at Stone Mountain. And oh. um, yeah, so uh, yeah, a lot of really sacred spots. And like part of me was a little weird about that because I was like, do I really want to like, share this with everyone but then i was like man stuff is just like too good to like keep to myself so um yeah it was really fun me and gabe had a good time it was a really beautiful day and you know it just kind of felt like vacation yeah um so you're about to you have a pretty extensive fall tour like coming up around this album release so what's that going to look like are you taking a band with you how are you thinking about translating this album, which was create like you can hear that it was created in a very particular time and place and with a very particular set of collaborators. So how are you feeling about translating that into a relatable live performance? I feel really good. Um, yeah. So like we played. Basically, I feel like my career is kind of going to be looked at as pre pandemic post-pandemic because I feel like I'm a different artist coming out of the pandemic than I was going into it in a lot of ways um but really I had enough time to realize like hey where do you fit into the grand scheme of things like what do you want this to be how do you want your touring to look like 
like just questions I never had time to like sit there and answer mm. honestly because I was touring and touring and touring and it's like you're just trying to hang on basically you know and um so yeah when I came out of the pandemic I was like you know what I want to like I want to just focus on the songs like I want the spotlight to be on the songs because that's what I do best and um so I've got a really great upright bass player who plays with me live and sings harmony and then I've got a uh, mandolin covering Sam's parts and mm-hmm. then a dobro player covering Jerry's parts and so we've been traveling as like four piece sometimes a trio um just depending on kind of what the gig is but I don't miss the drums which is nice and I just feel like my songs are in the front and I think mm-hmm. that pre-pandemic I you know I toured in bands that were a lot louder and I think mm-hmm. I've just really made everything quieter and I've just kind of like I've just shifted my focus and um I'm just having a lot of fun with it and I don't it's like something about electric guitars and drums stresses me out and so (laughs) not having those around live I feel like so much more comfortable on stage and I don't feel like vocally I'm having to fight a band anymore I -hmm. feel like I'm like I can just sing at like a normal volume like I would sing and so like basically what I wanted to do is I was having so much fun playing these songs in my living room uh, and I wanted the stage to feel like a living room like I wanted it to be so now when we rehearse it's like there's no microphones there's no pedals there's no anything it's just four acoustic instruments in my living room and just like having a good time it's not fussy it's like not stressful it's just like mm-hmm. you know I can hear everything really well I don't know I've just I like it being able to hear everything is harder than you might think like I feel like one of the weird uh open secrets of being a touring musician is that a lot of the time you cannot hear a goddamn thing. Like the audience will tell you if it was a good show and you didn't, you didn't hear the show. You were just like trying to hang on. Yeah. Muscle memory. (laughs) I feel that way sometimes. (laughs) Yeah. 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 I definitely felt like when you're in a louder setting or when the sound's just bad, it's kind of like you're working off of like reflex and muscle memory. And um, it's so distracting and you can never quite get into the moment that you want to get in, which is the moment of not thinking. Because Mm -hmm. if you're thinking about, hey, it doesn't sound good up here, then you're not losing yourself in the music. And um, I think that's the whole goal. So 100%. So yeah, so it's kind of tricky. So (laughs) so I was like, well, I can't control everything, but I can control stage volume. And so um, I just feel like this is a really good, it's like a really good musical bed for my songs. Hmm. Okay, so which song off of Forsythia are you most excited to play on your fall tour? Um, maybe I don't fit in, I think, mm-hmm. because um, I know we talked about it a little bit earlier. But I think that song is really cool for me because it's like when I, I, I wrote that song and the verses were completely different and I rewrote all the verses. And, and so at first the song like was just, the chorus was the same, but like the verses felt really whiny like it was like oh woe is me you know I don't fit in like I'll never you know like I don't belong Mm -hmm. anywhere and then at a certain point during the pandemic like a switch just kind of flipped and I was like whoa like I don't fit in and that's amazing you know like there's Mm -hmm. like a ton of power 
that comes with that. And so I rewrote the verses from a place of power and like, it just feels kind of like an anthem to me as close Mm -hmm. as an anthem as I can get. Um, So, uh, you know, I think I'm just really excited to play that one and it's got a cool groove to it. Nice. Okay. Are you willing to do a brief, I think nine or 10 question lightning round? The rules are just like, shoot from the hip. Don't think about it too hard. You can pass on a question, but you can't ask for clarification. Yeah, let's do it. All right, you got it. This is Caleb Cottle doing the Basic Folk Lightning Round. Who is one musical artist from North Carolina that everybody on earth should listen to? Doc Watson. Twizzlers or Red Vines? Twizzlers. Who is your celebrity crush? Uh, I don't know. I really, I don't... um... Yeah, kill your heroes. Okay, great. Ah, Love it. What is your favorite music venue to play? Uh, I'm going to say The Garage. Rest in peace, Winston-Salem, North Carolina. What is one music venue that you dream of playing someday? Bucket list venue. I guess the Ryman. Mm -hmm. What is your deepest fear? Um, never knowing what success means to me. Summer Olympics or Winter Olympics? Winter. What is one song you wish you had written? Hickory Wind. What is the best time of day to write a song? Mornings. Caleb, thank you so much for being a guest on Basic Folk. Everybody go out and get Persithia October 7th. Is that right? That's right. It is a great record from a great, great songwriter. Thank you so much. Thank you. This episode of Basic Folk was produced by me, Cindy Howes. Alex Stanton composes our music. Basic Folk is on the Bluegrass Situation Podcast Network. You can find all of our episodes there. Wherever you get podcasts, you can search for us on the SiriusXM app under Basic Folk, or you can go to our website, basicfolk.com. And we'll talk to you next time. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye. I love that.